Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, turn in Mark chapter 14 and 15. That's where we're going to be. The Gospel of Mark chapter 14 and 15. You know, we all like free stuff. Who likes free things? You like I love free samples as much as the next guy. And um, the one negative thing about free stuff is that we often don't appreciate the cost of it. You know, it's free, but it still costs somebody something, didn't it? It always does, somewhere along the line. It might be free to me. Um, and that's why good parents always have their kids pay for things, you know, they teach because it teaches your child the value of, of things and uh, teaches them to appreciate things. They appreciate things better that way. So it's an important part of parenting. But that's, so free, to, free things are great, um, but we, we understand there's this, there's this other side to it as well, that we need to appreciate the cost of something. And my prayer for us today is this, that we see how much our salvation costs Jesus. And that we will fall on our knees in humble gratitude and worship for what he's given to us. Because the freedom that we enjoy in Christ was not free. Right? And um, it certainly wasn't cheap. Amen? Um, The book of Mark, as we come into chapter 14 and 15, has taken a sudden morbid turn. All of the optimism and the hope and the adoring crowds from the beginning of the book have disappeared leaving Jesus in the crosshairs of hell. We, uh, we all have bad days, um, but what happens to Jesus in Mark 14 and 15? Like, is your worst day magnified by 10,000? Many people don't like this section of Scripture. We find it to be uncomfortable because the blood and the pure evil and the injustice and the ugliness of human nature, it, it's on full display and uncomfortable for us to look at. What's more, we see the wrath of God in chapters 14 and 15. The wrath of God towards evil. And then we see Jesus. He's the innocent one. Jesus, the one who who healed lepers and, and welcomed children and fed the hungry. This Jesus, like he's caught in the middle of it all. Jesus stands between the worst of humanity and the wrath of God. We don't like to think about the wrath of God much, do we? We prefer to pretend that it doesn't exist. We prefer to think of God as gentle and kind and, you know, sheep-loving and accepting of all. But let's just consider the alternative for a moment, okay? Like, I propose to you that you actually want the wrath of God, because a God without wrath is a God without love that love and wrath actually go together. When you love someone, you care deeply about what happens to them. You care deeply about what harms them. If you're indifferent towards the pain of someone else or the plight of someone else, it's because you don't love them. You don't care. You know, their pain doesn't affect you because you're not invested. If God were indifferent to your problems... If God were indifferent to you, he would not be a God who loves you. 
You don't want a God who's indifferent to your suffering. You don't want a God who's indifferent to, to your pain, who's indifferent to your problems. Uh, Timothy Keller is a pastor, and he says this, he writes this. He says, if God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. I like that quote. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. Timothy Keller also uh, draws out another important point. He says that if you, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, then you really have no idea about your own value. A God, a God without wrath has no need to go to the cross. He, he draws it out like this. He says, picture you have two gods. Picture a God on the left who pays nothing to love you. And picture on the right the God of the Bible, who, because he's angry at evil, must go to the cross, absorb the debt, pay the ransom, and suffer the torment. So you have these two gods. How do you know how much the free love God loves you or how valuable you are to him? His love is just a concept because he's never demonstrated it. He pays no price to love you. But consider how valuable you are to the God of the Bible. You are valuable enough that he would go to the, these depths to rescue you. So we see the wrath of God in other ways. Let me just picture it this way. I like to think of it sometimes as like you see it in the face of a loving parent whose child is running into the middle of a street in front of a moving bus. That loving parent does not just casually stand aside and try to rationalize with the child, giving them five reasons why you should make a different choice today. That's not what a loving parent does. No, the love of the parent and the desperation of the moment call for an intense reaction. And that's wrath. Does that make sense? You, you see that intense reaction. You're seeing wrath in action. You're seeing love in action. God sees the human race. Well, let's be personal. God sees you. And God sees me. And he sees us in this precise predicament. That sin has so corrupted our being, so corrupted us, that, that horror and gruesome death are imminent. And God has done something about it. Praise God. What we see in Mark chapter 14 and 15 is the love of God on full display as, as he stands in front of wrath, as he stands in front of that bus that's about to hit you, and he absorbs it, leaving you and me to go free. That's what we're looking at today. So with your Bibles open, we're going to look at Mark 14 and 15, and we're going to do what we've done the last couple of weeks. We've got to skim some of it in, some of it in order to cover it all, and then we'll stop in a couple of spots, okay? But then we're going to make some quick observations, and then we'll draw out some application to our lives. So chapter 14 opens up with a sweet moment. Think of this as the calm before the storm. Okay, uh, Jesus is having dinner at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, we could safely assume that Jesus had probably healed Simon of leprosy, because if he still had leprosy, Jesus' disciples would not be eating in his house. Right? Back then, lepers were pariah in their society, and if they had any leprosy at all, he wouldn't even be in his own house. He'd be outcast somewhere. So, it's 
we don't know for sure, but perhaps Jesus had healed Simon of leprosy and Simon hosts a meal to say thank you. I kind of like to picture it that way. So this is a, it's an appropriate way to thank Jesus for healing him. And the evening is made all the sweeter by the presence of this woman who shows up. John's gospel tells us that her name is Mary, that she's the same Mary that's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So that's this Mary. She comes and she anoints, she takes this expensive jar of perfume, breaks it, and anoints Jesus' feet with it. Now last week, you and I met a widow in our study who gave her last two pennies to God in her offering and in her worship. And we noted how her extravagant worship pleased the heart of God. Here we find Mary doing a similar thing. She's pouring out her love for Jesus in an extravagant way by breaking this jar of perfume. You see, this perfume, scholars believe, would have been something that Mary inherited from her mother and her grandmother. So it's priceless. This is a family heirloom. It's not something you could... I mean, and it's something that she would just not you know, willy-nilly break and use. She would save it and maybe even pass it on to her own daughters at some point, but only would she ever use it if she was to find herself in some extremely bad situation and she needed the money. Otherwise, this jar of perfume is the kind of thing that she would hold on to, cherish, and, and you know, for, the, for her whole life. It's as if when she breaks this and pours it out on Jesus, it's as if she's saying, Jesus, my whole future is wrapped up in you. I'm giving you my whole future, Jesus. This is the kindest act of gest- this kindest act of love, worship, devotion. And in verse 8, Jesus comments that she did this in order to prepare his body for burial. Do you see that in chapter 14, verse 8? Which is interesting. Because that would mean that she's the only one at the dinner that night who really understood what Jesus was doing. It's ironic, isn't it? Because Jesus had told his disciples several times already that he was going to die, you know, be crucified, buried, rise again. And the disciples, for whatever reason, were thick-minded and they were not understanding it and not capturing it. And yet here's Mary, who was not privy to those conversations instinctively understanding what Jesus had come to do. And then verse 10 tells us that it was at this point when Judas decided to betray Jesus. Do you see that in chapter 14, verse 10? Now, a lot of people speculate why Judas betrayed Jesus. I've seen a couple of movies about it. It's kind of interesting. Some books have been written. You know, it's, it's an interesting topic. What would motivate Judas to do what he did? But the truth is, we don't know. However, Mark connects it to this event. Mark connects it to the worship of Mary. Mark tells us that that Judas and the others were critical of Mary's extravagant gift. They judged her as being wasteful. Perhaps this was the tipping point for Judas, who had enough of this strange Messiah talking about death and resurrection, who was allowing women to break expensive jars of perfume and anoint his feet with it. Maybe this was it for Judas, and he decided that this was the time to turn Jesus in and to end this. 
Mark brings us then into this moving scene that you and I call the Last Supper. The important thing to note about this meal is that Jesus uses this opportunity to communicate what he's about to do. The Passover, you see, is one of the most important, if not the most important, holiday on a Jewish calendar. Like the closest thing that you and I could think of might be Christmas, you know? I mean, and it's not even close. But you know how Christmas is a big deal for us in our culture, and we tend to build up to it all year long, and it's just a special day. I mean, that's, that's the best we could compare the Passover to and how these ancient Jews would have felt about the Passover. It was the highlight of their calendar. And Jesus uses this meal to communicate what he's about to do. You see, at the Passover, Jews celebrated and remembered the night that God set the people of Israel free from Egypt. You remember the ten plagues, the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the river and the blood and so forth. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn child, where the death angel went through the nation of Egypt. And that night, in one moment, the firstborn son in every home, from Pharaoh to the slave, everyone died. Unless... You were to take the blood of a lamb, an innocent lamb, and apply that to your doorpost. And then the death angel would see that blood and pass over, that's the name, pass over your home, sparing your firstborn son. So literally, anyone found under the blood would be spared death and judgment. See? And so Jesus takes this meal, which is being celebrated at this moment, and he uses this to draw a direct connection to himself, saying, this bread is my body given for you. This cup is my blood given for you. It's as if Jesus is saying that he would be the sacrificial lamb, and it would be his blood that, if applied, would stop the judgment of death on anyone who lives under it. And this is an important thing for you and I to understand. Forgiveness and freedom is available to every single human being because Jesus has paid the price. But it's only applied to those who receive it. Just because Jesus died 2,000 years ago and paid for your sin, it doesn't mean that it's automatically yours. It's available to you. Please hear this. God has paid the price. He's done everything he can do for you to have it. But now you need to receive it in order to complete the transaction. And so this is, this is what's being celebrated. This is the message that Jesus is offering in this dinner. He's saying, here, this is my bread. This is my body. This is my blood, right? Would you receive me? He, Jesus is inviting them into this, into this uh, relationship, see, this transaction. From here, though, the text turns increasingly dark. The next scene is Gethsemane. I like, I like to just read it for us. Mark chapter 14, I'll start with verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. What did he begin to be? Thank you. Go ahead. Say that out loud. Deeply distressed and troubled. 
That's important. Verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So the word Gethsemane, it means olive press because it's where olives were pressed to make oil. And it's a fitting name because here Jesus is crushed. Here Jesus is pulverized in order to bring forgiveness to you and to me. Verse 33 tells us that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. We read that. The Greek word there means literally overcome with horror. Jesus sees something in the garden. He sees something in that moment. And he literally comes undone, unglued. He falls apart. What did Jesus see? The wrath of God. He saw the wrath of God coming against your sin. And it's stunning if you think about it. Because through the whole book of Mark, I mean, we've noted this, through the whole gospel of Mark, Jesus is absolutely unflappable, isn't he? Unflappable. Yet here he is in the garden, and he falls apart. Calming storms, that's an easy task. He created nature. He controls it. Commanding demons, effortless. He's ruled the spiritual world since before time. Raising the dead and healing sick bodies, no big deal. He created the human body. He knows how to fix it. But carrying your sin, your sin, and facing the wrath of God toward it, absorbing the judgment that was coming at you, that brought Jesus to his knees and made him sweat blood. You say, my sin is that bad? Yes, it is. You say, the wrath of God is that severe? Yes, it is. The prophet Jeremiah depicted the wrath of God this way. He says this in, in Jeremiah 23, 19. He says, see, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. I like that word picture. It's kind of interesting, you know, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. This is a picture of the wrath of God. But if you think about it, even those words fall short. What Mark has done is he's given us a picture. He's given us something that we can see with our imagination. Do you see Jesus falling apart in Gethsemane? Do you see the Jesus who walked on water, who raised the dead, 
who fed the crowd 5,000 with food, that Jesus who handled critics and haters with ease, that same Jesus, do you see him now in the Garden of Gethsemane coming completely unglued? Do you see him sweating blood? See, God's wrath is so severe that God himself struggles under the weight of it. Let's not lose that image. There's something else here that we don't want to miss. Peter. You see Peter? Sleepy Peter. Earlier that evening at the supper table, Jesus predicted that Peter would betray him. And Peter denied it, and he pledged his allegiance to Jesus. Look at verse 31, 1431. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Okay, Peter. From here, Jesus takes them to the garden, and he shares his troubled heart with his friends. Jesus goes off to a quiet spot to pray and comes back in verse 37, and he finds the disciples doing what? Sleeping. And do you notice who Jesus calls out directly in verse 37? Take a look at verse 37. Who does Jesus call out directly? Peter. He goes, Peter, um, you're asleep. Weren't you the one who just told me that you would die with me? And now you're asleep. Hmm. See, Peter's failure is put on full display for us. I love it. In one emotional moment, Peter swears his allegiance to Jesus And then only an hour or so later, Peter is sound asleep. But you know what? I find for me, like, that's strangely comforting. Because I'm Peter. Aren't you? Have you not let, have you not failed Jesus on countless occasions? Has your mouth not written checks that you can't cash? You know what I mean? Like, I've made promises that I can't keep. I've swore to Jesus, oh, I'm all yours, I'm all in. And then I wimp out. See, I I totally identify with Peter here, because this is me. And you know what else is cool in here? Is remember from, I think it was the first time when we first began to study Mark. Remember who gave Mark the information that he used to write his gospel? Peter did. Right, Peter, Mark interviewed Peter to get his information for the gospel of Mark. So who's telling Mark about his failure? Peter. And I can just picture Peter as an old man. I mean, because now this is, uh, you know, several decades after the event. And so now Peter is an older man, and, and he's recounting this as he's telling Mark the story of what happened. Can you just see Peter? I wonder what's the look on his face, you know? He's thinking, you know, Mark, I was a fool. <laughs> you know, I was a fool. I, I made big promises to Jesus, and I blew it. And, I, you know, and I think it's so, it's humble of Peter, actually, to, to, to portray himself like this as such a failure. It's as, if, it's as if Peter's like, you know what, maybe, maybe you can learn from my mistake. And here we are 2,000 years still learning from Peter's mistakes. Thank you, Peter. From here, things get really messy in Mark. Judas betrays him with a kiss in the garden, and Jesus is arrested. And then he's placed on trial before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. 
And you notice the trial before the Sanhedrin. The whole thing is just a sham. It's a Mickey Mouse trial, literally. Like they can't find two witnesses to lie about Jesus and for their lies to come to, to corroborate. Like they can't find two people to lie together and make it agree. They, they can't get their stories to line up. Jesus, so Jesus speeds up the process in verse 62. You see what Jesus does in 1462? Jesus claims to be God. And I think he does that intentionally to speed it up because the trial was not going well. They couldn't get witnesses to lie about him. And so Jesus claims to be God knowing that they would accuse him of blasphemy and then want him dead. And Mark then brings us back to Peter at the end of chapter 14. As it comes to a close, do you remember Peter and his unwavering allegiance? Well, now a slave girl confronts him about his association with Jesus, and Peter denies it. And she doesn't do it once, she does it twice. So two different times, Peter denies knowing Jesus in front of this slave girl. Peter, big, tough blustery Peter, who's going to die with Jesus, becomes intimidated by a slave girl. And the third confrontation came, and Peter knowing Peter denied knowing Jesus again, and then the rooster crowed. <laughs> and Peter immediately was broken in his heart, knowing what he had done. And the Bible tells us he went out and he wept and he wept. And this is Peter. This is, this is the end of Peter for now. Mark shifts the story and we go directly to Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus has taken to Pilate, who is the Roman prefect serving as Caesar's representative in Palestine. The Jews did not have the authority to kill Jesus, to put him to death, but Pilate did. And so they get him to Pilate. And in this scene, there's a powerful exchange that reveals the heart of God for us that we don't want to miss. In this scene with Pilate, there's a murderer and an insurrectionist. There's a true blue criminal, a man by the name of Barabbas, and he's exchanged for Jesus. Pilate uses Barabbas as a bargaining chip of sorts because Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent, and yet the crowd is there pressuring him. It's a mess. And so Pilate uses Barabbas sort of as a way, hoping to maybe call upon their better senses, right? And so what he does is he takes Barabbas, who is a known criminal. Everybody knew what he had done and who he was. And he places him alongside of Jesus. And he says, well, I'll set one of these men free. Who would you like me to set free? And the crowd, shockingly, demands that Barabbas get set free and that Jesus be condemned to die. Pilate failed to understand the depth of their hatred for Jesus. They wanted him dead so badly that they're willing to release Barabbas and set him free back on the streets. The interesting thing about this is this. Barabbas, the name Barabbas, it means son of the father. You know, a little Hebrew lesson, anytime you see in the Bible some a name with the prefix bar, B-A-R, it always means son of. So you have Barnabas, means son of encouragement. You have, uh, bar, you have Bartimaeus, 
We know blind Bartimaeus, we call, call him, son of Timaeus. You have Bartholomew, the son of Tholomew. I mean, so we, we have Bar-Jesus, Bar-Jonas. There's a lot of men in the Bible with the name Bar like as a prefix of their name because it just means simply son of. So Barabbas, son of Abba, father. So we have the son of the father being exchanged for the son of the father, don't we? But what we really have is the prodigal son of the father being exchanged for the perfect son of the father, don't we? Barabbas gets set free and Jesus is condemned to die. In a very real way, Barabbas is every one of us, is he not? You and I are the prodigal sons and daughters of the father. You and I are the ones condemned to die. You and I are the ones who deserve death because you and I are the ones that have sinned. Jesus is the perfect one, and Jesus has stepped in, and now his life is exchanged for ours. So the mockery and the pain continues, and Jesus is condemned to die, and he's pinned to a cross, and we come to Mark chapter 15, verse 33. I just want to read this section as well. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. I wish that I had time to dive into all of this, but I really don't. And honestly, I don't think I'm preaching this nearly as well as I wrote it in the journal. So I would encourage you to please read chapter 10 in the journal for this week because Truthfully, as I was studying this, this, these two chapters in Mark were the ones that just had the greatest impact on me. And so I hope that you can find the time to read chapter 10 in the journal. And if you don't even have a journal, talk to me and I can get you a PDF version, okay? Because we're out of the hard copies. But I want to bring us to just a couple of observations here about this text. And then we'll close with some application. So the first observation is this. Ladies... You get the prize for having the greatest understanding and devotion to Jesus at the end of Mark. Chapter 14 opens with Mary and her extravagant gift of worship to Jesus. And you remember last week, who was the hero of last week's text? The widow who gave her last two mites an extravagant gift of worship to Jesus. And in the scene at the Last Supper, who was the only one who understood that Jesus was about to die? Mary. 
It wasn't the disciples. And who were the ones there to bury Jesus at the end? Women. The disciples are where? Who knows? They're gone, right? And, and, and it's who is with Jesus at the end? The women. Now, you need to understand something, that this is evidence of the authenticity of Mark's gospel. In ancient writings, women were not portrayed as heroes. It's not how it worked 2,000 years ago. So Mark would have had many reasons culturally to just ignore these facts as he was writing, and yet he doesn't, which is pretty good evidence that he's telling you the truth. It really did happen like this. So good job, girls. That's one thing. Second observation is this. The only people who followed Jesus at the end followed him at a distance. In chapter 14, verse 54, Peter followed at a distance. And in chapter 15, verse 40, the women who made it to the crucifixion, but look at verse 40 in chapter 15, they were where? At a distance, see? So in other words, what that means is that Jesus was all alone as he paid for our sin. Nobody helped him. He did this alone. And it also means that we still can't help Jesus take care of our sins. That's a really important message. Salvation does not work like, you know, you do your best and then Jesus makes up for the difference and then you can go to heaven. Like, that's not at all how this works, friends. Jesus has paid 100% for your salvation. And there is literally nothing that you can do to improve on that or to somehow win his favor. There's no way you can make yourself a good enough person that then God's just going to be won over by your personality and your good deeds and accept you in. Like, that doesn't work that way. Jesus has paid for your salvation 100%, and all you can do is to receive the gift. That's what you do. That's what I do. I receive the gift, and that completes the gift in our lives. The third observation is this. The last person to acknowledge Jesus' true identity in the Gospel of Mark as the Son of God was who? A Roman soldier who killed him, who crucified him. And we've, we've noted this before. In chapter 15, verse 39, the soldier declares, surely this man was the son of God. But we've noted in Mark that there are three, only three times, three different types of people who acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God. The first ones were the demons. Remember that? And actually the demons acknowledge Jesus as son of God several times in the gospel of Mark. They're the ones that have the clearest perception of who Jesus is. And then the second one is Peter in chapter 8 who declares, you are the Messiah. And now here we have the Roman at the cross saying, surely this man was the Son of God. And so what we have here are three witnesses representing three different worlds. Demons from the spirit world, Peter from the Jewish world, and this Roman from the Gentile world. All of them testifying and their testimony corroborating and agreeing that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's powerful because in chapter 14, 
when the Sanhedrin is, has Jesus on trial, do you remember they tried to get people to lie about him? And not even the lies could agree. And yet here you have three different witnesses from three different worlds, all testifying to the truth. This is the Son of God. That's powerful. So what does this all mean for you and me? I think we can say it this way with three statements. We can apply it this way. The first statement is this. Extravagant sacrifice inspires extravagant worship. Did Jesus offer an extravagant sacrifice? Yes. And his extravagant sacrifice inspires extravagant worship on our part. Jesus gave his all. Mary gave her all when she anointed Jesus' feet. The widow gave her all when she put her last two copper coins in the plate. The question is, will you give your all? You know, your worship of God will always reflect three things about you. It'll reflect your understanding of who God is. It'll reflect your awareness of how much he forgave you. And it will reflect your appreciation of the price that he paid for you, for your forgiveness. See, if your worship is dull, if your, if your pursuit of Christ is lackluster, mediocre, the chances are good that you've forgotten one or all three of these. And that the real key to, to reigniting the fire of passion in your heart is to come back to this. Renew your understanding of who he is as God. Renew your awareness of how much he forgave you, how much of a sinner you were. You know, how far gone were you before Jesus stepped in and rescued you? You need to renew your appreciation of the price that he paid. And this is why we, I think this is why Jesus tells us to, to celebrate communion, right? As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Why? He doesn't want us to forget the price that he paid to buy our freedom because he doesn't want us to just treat it casually. He paid a high price, an infinitely high price for my freedom. And you and I are to live the rest of our lives, every moment of our lives, in, 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 in appreciation and gratitude for what he's done for us. So that's the first one. Extravagant sacrifice inspires extravagant worship. And the second one is this. We betray Jesus every day when we choose to be lukewarm and lazy in our devotion to him. When we choose anything less than a red-hot commitment to him, it's actually a form of betrayal. Here's what I mean. We always live in tension between, in the tension between betrayal and devotion. There's no middle ground. I'm either moving closer to extravagant devotion, like Mary, who gave her everything, or I'm moving closer to betrayal, like Peter and the gang. Nobody wakes up one morning and just out of the blue decides, I'm going to betray Jesus today. No, we're all like Peter. All of us who think we've got this, but we're clueless about our own weaknesses. That's how we are. And the truth is, for Peter and these disciples, their betrayal of Jesus did not happen at the cross. It happened at the table when they criticized Mary for her extravagant gift to Jesus. 
That was their first betrayal of Christ. They said that it was wasteful. And Jesus said, that's beautiful. In the end, whose opinion really mattered? Jesus' opinion mattered, didn't it? In worship, his opinion is the only one that matters. And it's a betrayal when I'm more worried about how other people will think or what other people are doing than about me being simply focused on Christ. We betray Jesus every time that we mock or we tisk-tisk someone whom we perceive to be overly zealous or radical. Like, what's wrong with us? Why do we do that? Why don't we celebrate and imitate people who give everything for Jesus? I think because it's easier to criticize them than it is to follow them. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me for betraying you on a regular basis. Because I'm so much like Peter. I wish I wasn't, but I am. And then the third, op- the third application is this. We need to receive Jesus as our substitute. As our substitute. Do you understand <clears throat> the judgment that you're under? Do you understand that? Look at, look at your children. Do you understand the judgment that they're under? As innocent and sweet and kind and precious as they are, he or she is under judgment. Your neighbor, your coworkers, all of us are under the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And I like that because it's put in the past tense. We were by nature objects of wrath. So Ephesians is being written to Christians. It's being written to people who have been forgiven by Christ. And so the reality is that if I'm forgiven by Christ, that I am no longer an object of wrath. Praise God, right? But if I'm not forgiven, if I, if I remain unforgiven, if I've not received his sacrifice and his gift to me, I am an object of wrath. And the truth is, this is where every human is. Every person ever lived, ever to live on the planet, that's how we're born. He says, by nature, by our human nature, we're an object of wrath. Do you understand? Meaning I'm born that way. So the horror that Jesus faced in the garden was coming at you. The horror that Jesus faced in the garden was coming at your children. It's coming at your loved ones. It's coming at all of us. And we have a choice to make. Am I going to stand and face it myself? That's a fool's game. Or will I accept Jesus as my substitute? See, because you and I are Barabbas. Will I accept the freedom that he buys me? Or will I insist on paying it myself? My sin angers God. Why? Because God's touchy? No. Because God loves me. And God sees the damage that sin does to me. And he hates that with a passion like you and I cannot even begin to describe. He hates watching you destroy yourself. He does. God's wrath is serious, and it's terrifying, and it's coming for us if we don't accept Jesus as our substitute. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face the judgment. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Ready? Here's the gospel, the good news. Jesus is our substitute. That's the good news. Jesus stood in for us. When you see the horror, when you see the pain and the gore that Jesus understands, you need to understand that all of that was coming at you. That had your name on it. But Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to take your place and to receive the wrath and receive the judgment so that you would be set free. He was and is your substitute if you will receive it. I want to invite Karis to come and the worship team. Chris can come over. Eric. Just to close us in a song. But this is a really, this is, this is like where the gospel of Mark has been heading all along. Do you see that? Like Mark has been leading us to this moment. He begins right away in chapter 1 saying that Jesus is the gospel. And remember how we've learned that that, that Romans applied that to the Caesar, that when the, at the birth of a new Caesar, that's, that's good news that changes everything. And Mark says, oh no. The birth of Jesus, that's the gospel. Jesus is the good news that changes everything for everybody. And then Mark sets out to prove that, doesn't he? He shows us Jesus' power. He shows us Jesus' grace. He shows us Jesus' compassion. He demonstrates that Jesus is the kind of leader that every one of us is looking for because he has all this power and all this ability, and yet he, he uses it to elevate us. He uses it for our benefit. And then he brings us right to this spot where he shows us that Jesus does the ultimate act. He dies in our place. He takes the punishment that's rightfully ours upon himself. How could I not give my life to him? See? And you see how this is gospel? The fact that God exists is not gospel. That's not good news that changes everything. A lot of people believe that God exists. You know, he just exists. But friends, the truth that God exists and that he has come to earth because he loves you to pay for your sin, to make you right with himself, like that's good news that changes everything that God has taken his, all of his power and his strength and he's applied it to forgiving you and me. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.